Hi there, listeners. Just a reminder, all co-hosts of the Arbitration Station appear on it in their personal capacities. So please do not attribute statements to or take legal advice from what is said on this informal podcast. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station, episode number nine. Hi Brian, how are you? Hi Jan, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Welcome back again. <laughs> yeah, welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> right. What uh, what's going on with you, Jan? Same old, same old. I I I told you I met our old professor, uh, Kai Hobert, uh, last week. So I was, um, it was nice. And yes, he was on uh, the podcast as well. He was. I was just going to say a previous <laughs> a previous guest on the podcast. We were sweating when we had that interview. But yeah, that's <laughs> great that you're still keeping in touch with him. Are you going to Paris at the to the IBA? I'm not, sadly. Are, are you? No, no, sadly not. I don't want any bed bugs. No, just <laughs> kidding. I, uh, I, is London getting bed bugs? Who knows? Um, no, it's just uh, poor timing with some of my cases. But it seems like the world is descending on Paris next week. So that will be interesting. Uh, yeah, très bien. Très bien. <laughs> exactly. Well said. Um, yeah, I think we have a really good episode today. Um, mm -hmm. We have, we'll start with an interview with a friend of the podcast and a friend of our hosts, uh, Duncan Picard. Uh, he co-authored an article with Catherine Amirfar and Roman Zamor, who are all at Doublewise and Plimpton, and they mm -hmm. published an article in ASOL Insights called Representation of Member States at the United Nations, Recent mm -hmm. Challenges. So it talks about government representation at the United Nations General Assembly um, and how it determines who will act for member states and also mm -hmm. dealing with kind of recognition and representation and the differences between the two when it talks about their attendance and uh, acknowledgement of who attends the General Assembly. Uh, really interesting interview. I'm happy about that. Yeah, sounds really interesting. <laughs> Again, I'm looking forward to editing it. It's great to hear that someone's doing the public international law legal right. stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. Without Joel and uh, Sadia here, it tends to get a bit commercial between us, doesn't it? But the um, it, it it's very public international law, but we did our best because there are um, a few arbitration proceedings that kind of intersect this issue. Mm -hmm. um, so we did our best to link it to arbitration. So we are still being purists. Sounds great. And what about happy fun time? Happy fun time. I took it upon myself to engage my LinkedIn network, which is ever growing since the podcast and I'm never able to engage with it. So I'm happy to do it now. I asked the question to my uh, LinkedIn network and I said, fill in this sentence, quote, you know, you work in arbitration when dot, dot, dot. And I got a load of answers, uh, really some funny engagement. And I've narrowed it down to 15 uh sentences that we're going to use in happy fun time how do you know you work in arbitration when brilliant let, let me guess michael mcclarath uh, responded the he did not actually. he did not no <laughs> maybe we should call him on the in a spontaneous phone call and see what his answer is no he did not our universal heckler did not respond but we've got some really good ones 
<laughs> Great. Looking forward to that. All right. Let's uh, start off with Duncan. Welcome back. We have an inter- a great interview for you today. We have Duncan Picard, who's associate at Doublewise and Plimpton, and he has not recently published an article, but it's been about a year now, but still apropos considering what's coming up in September. Well, this is in October now, but and in December as well. And we'll get into those why those dates are relevant in a bit. But he co-authored an article called Representation of Member States at the United Nations Recent Challenges. And we have Duncan Picard with us today. Hi, Duncan. How are you? Hi, Brian. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you for bringing this article to our attention. It it really ties in with public international law issues. And we also want to tie it into arbitration as well. So um, really excited for you to get us started with this article and kind of how did I mean, kind of representation of at the United Nations isn't something that most arbitration lawyers come across um, initially in their careers. So how did this come uh, of interest to you or come across your desk? Yeah, so this came of interest to me and my colleagues, uh, Homa and Catherine, because there have been really an uptick in representation challenges at the United Nations in recent years. Um, and I, I think also that was of interest um, just generally in the way that the United Nations functions, because it raises some very interesting questions about internal decision making within international organizations. But it also has some real world implications for the way that disputes get resolved in the international sphere, with also some specific implications for arbitration, um, uh, which which we can get into a, a bit later. But um, it, it, came, it more more specifically in our practice, it, it came about because we represented, uh, we had two representations that touched on on these issues of disputed government representation. One was we represented a group of Rohingya refugees who were living in Bangladesh. Um, and they uh, put in a request. Um, uh, we, we, we represented them in, in submitting a, a, a declaration, um, uh, a statement to the ICC prosecutor to encourage him to um, accept the declaration that the National Unity Government of Myanmar had submitted accepting the jurisdiction of the ICC um, over um, over uh, Myanmar. Um, right. And this uh, raised an issue of whether the National Unity Government was actually the correct representative of um, of Myanmar before the um, uh, before the uh, before the ICC. Um, and uh, this came about after um, the um, democratically elected government in Myanmar was deposed um, in a coup by the Tatmadaw by the military there. Um, so we, we that's how we first got involved in thinking about government representation issues. And then separately, we we um, represented a member, uh, uh, we advised a member of the National Unity Government, um, which, of course, is, you know, preoccupied by um, by government representation issues at the moment. Okay, you've teased us enough. So before we get in, I feel like we're going uh, in, not in order here. So let's go back to the very beginning. And let's go into the history of what are we even talking about? What are we talking about representation before the General Assembly? How does it work? Let's start there. Sure. So 
representation before the General Assembly um, is an, an incredibly important issue. Um, the and it's it's actually been an important issue that uh, has faced uh, representation in international policymaking bodies going back uh, even to the League of Nations from the the early days of the start of of multilateral affairs. And the basic issue, uh, the basic challenge, is that. Um, when these international organizations get together, you need to have a credible way of figuring out who is representing the the state that they that they purport to represent. Um, and this gets down to what is a, a fundamental distinction in um, in international law, which is between recognition of uh, states and recognition of governments that represent those states. So all of us public international lawyers, we will recall back to law school, the uh, Montevideo criteria or you know the, the firmly established criteria in international law for when international law recognizes a state. But that's different right. from when uh, you have to think about which government represents that state. And historically, uh, government recognition, government recognition, um, has been an issue um, for multi uh, for for bilateral affairs. So you know, one state would one government would choose to credential another government or uh, open an embassy in in a you know in in a foreign capital or, or something like that. Um, but uh, increasingly, um, with the rise of multilateral affairs and the League of Nations and the United Nations, that it's not simple enough to say that this is just an issue for for bilateral relationships and, and, and recognizing governments. Um, and so this this first came up at, at the League of Nations when um, some um, when a, a, a group um, a, a purporting to represent the government of, of Ethiopia uh, showed up. Um, and you know, of course, uh, back then in the League of Nations days in Geneva, uh, there's no you know electronic record keeping or anything. So someone literally just shows up with. A document with a seal on it, and you have to figure out whether that's a, a valid credential to 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 represent this this government um, at the United Nations. So, so it's you know it's it's a it's a longstanding issue, and and that's kind of the the fundamental distinction that we have to start with. Right. So it's accreditation versus representation is the distinction. Well, accreditation is actually a different issue, um, okay. and so and th this this gets down to why it's so difficult to um, sort out these government representation disputes because originally um, the, the this issue of kind of the you know, if you just think in classic terms of this document with a seal on it, that's the credential that that someone's bringing, and you have to um, and so that was the 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 first. Um, procedure that the uh, League of Nations set up was to have a, an accreditation committee um, in the assembly of the League of Nations that would assess these accreditation documents and determine whether they were valid. Um, and But what that assumed was that you can distinguish between accreditation, the validation of a document, mm. and representation. Um, which is, you know, saying what that document stands for. And that the, the mandate of the credentials committee in the early days of the League of Nations, they attempted to really cabin its responsibility to just to be about accreditation. But it became clear from the start that you can't just, uh, there's a relationship between the physical document and 
what it stands for. And so what we've seen is that the Credentials Committee, um, its role has really evolved um, from the days of the League of Nations um, through some representation disputes in the 1970s and then to today, um, where de facto um, they become the body that um, is the first mover in um, determining um, how in determining whether um, a particular government, um, excuse me, whether a particular um, representative from a state actually um, represents that government. Okay, so is this, so we have the UN, so the UN Credentials Committee is, has their own rules of procedure. And that's still ongoing, right? That's still something that is received in September. And they kind of pe- any delegation has to submit their documents for accreditation before they appear in the general assembly is that right yeah that's right so the so the, the way that it works is that there is a credentials committee um that that's set up that's a it's a committee of the general assembly um it always has um the five members of the uh, the, the five permanent members of the security council um plus um a, a number of other members uh, who, who sit on the credentials committee. And basically, you know, they're, if, if you just read their rules of procedure, they're meant to play this simply ministerial function where right. they receive the credentials, um, the credentials documents, they um, have a meeting, they make a report, um, and they make a recommendation to accept those credentials to the General Assembly. And then there's a there's a standing line item on the General Assembly's um uh, 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 agenda where they approve the report of the credentials committee, and that's how this this gets sort, sorted out. Um, usually, the credentials committee meets actually a little bit later than the opening of the general assembly. They okay. usually meet around December these days. Um, but uh, in any event, that's that's kind of the process. And you know, mo- most of the time, that's in ninety nine percent of cases, that is a purely ministerial formulaic process um, of accepting these credentials. But where it becomes really interesting and why we decided to write this paper um, is because in a small handful of cases, uh, but in an increasingly num- increasing number of cases, um, there are actually disputes over over which uh, credential to accept. Um, and this is this has come up in in a number of cases uh, recently um, uh, one of the standing issues that's going to be happening this season is uh, that'll be back on the agenda is both Myanmar and um, and Afghanistan. Um, uh, given the disputes between the Tatmadaw and the National Unity Government in Myanmar and the Taliban and the uh, pre-Taliban government in in uh, in Afghanistan. So this is where they. General Assembly or an organ of General Assembly has to basically not not force their hand, but they do have to make a determination on whether they're going to recognize them, right? And and then we get into the, the kind of blurring the lines between accreditation and or representation and recognition, right? And yeah, that's in, right. In your because in your yeah, article that, no, you that, talk that's... about how that does ended up blurring, and then the standards that they were applying. So I, I want to hear more about about that. Yeah, no, exactly. So, you know, this is, um, well, so actually, you know, one way that the Credentials Committee has uh, addressed this issue of of representation disputes is they often will simply um, 
de- de- um, decline to take a decision. Um, and what that does is they 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 say that they'll defer their decision until the until the to, until the next year, which in effect uh, leaves in place the status quo. Um, and okay. that is something that the credentials committee often does. They actually did it um, for ten consecutive years. Uh, the first time that the Taliban took over in Afghanistan, um, 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 but. So that's that's something that's at their disposal. But one of the really interesting things about the this credentials process is that the um, th- there aren't um, uh, enumerated criteria that the credentials committee uses to sort out these um, these credentials disputes, and that is actually um, a an explicit choice that the general assembly made when it was uh, setting up the credentials committee, the general assembly passed a resolution in 1950 um, that was supposed to set out some guidelines that the general assembly, that the uh, credentials committee should use in making this determination. And an early draft of that resolution actually listed some specific criteria that the, that the credentials committee could use. And that, approach of using enumerated criteria was done away with because okay. the they wanted to give the generals the, the credentials committee a little bit more flexibility in making um and making these determinations if you actually look to the practice of the credentials committee there are some different um criteria or at least you could say factors that have played a role um yeah in their decision making in the past, and this can include um, things like the um, the you, you know the the respect the the treatment of um, issues like human rights or commitment to democracy that these two competing um, bodies um, have 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 demonstrated in their. Um, have have dem- have demonstrated in their um, uh, process of coming to power or, or exercising power. Um, a a clear a clear factor that the credentials committee um, has at least taken into account in each situation is um, the uh, actual control of territory or of, of key government institutions that that has been used in in certain cases that has been demonstrated in in certain cases um but it's also clear that there are cases where like for example with the taliban right. where one of the um purported government bodies has controlled the vast majority of land territory in a country and all of the government institutions, but still hasn't been recognized. So we can take from that, that the general, that the uh, credentials committee is using other criteria such as human rights or a uh, commitment to democracy um, in, in making their assessments. But it's actually Im- impossible to tell um, whether there are, you know, what, what goes into their decision-making process because the uh, meetings of the credentials committee are, Behind closed doors, uh, and they, they don't issue minutes of their of their meetings, um, which is another so really no interesting published decisions, reasons, anything like that. There's nothing published on an annual basis. Sometimes there will be a debate in the general assembly about whether or not to accept the 
um, report of the credentials committee. And there you can get some statements from member states uh, about what they're thinking, but there's nothing, um, there's rarely anything that accompanies the, um, the credentials committee's formal report that explains their internal reasoning. So, I mean, we, we understand the, the consequence of this decision or the, the recognition of these um, governments uh, as far as the representation in the General Assembly. But in your article, you take it a step further and say other institutions and even courts and tribunals rely on these decisions or determinations. Can you elaborate on not only the institutions that rely on it, but also um, the what courts and tribunals have had to rely on it and specifically whether there's just a deference or deferral of of that decision. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that so it is, as you said, it, it is a, a very important question just for the United Nations itself. Of course, the General Assembly is the um, policymaking body of the United Nations. Um, it is so that that's important enough as it as it is. Um, but in addition, as you said, the determination of the uh, credentials committee and the general assembly does have implications for other international institutions sometimes even explicitly and that's the case for the um for the international criminal court for the icc prosecutor there this issue of government representation has come up several times for the icc prosecutor and in each and and he has issued a, a policy statement that saying that he will always defer to the decision of the general assembly. So that's an, that's an explicit acknowledgement um, of, uh, of the importance of the credentials committee's determination. Um, there are, however, uh, there is, however, an important exception to that, which is there have been actually, uh, or, or there is a recent case um, where, for the first time in history, a different government has represented the same state between two different organs of the United Nations, um, oh, which wow. is the case that happened um, most recently in the um, uh, in, before the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, in the Bangladesh, in the um, in the Gambia v. Myanmar case, um, because what happened there is the um, the case, uh, this is, of course, under um, the Genocide Convention. Um, and what happened in that case is it started before the coup that took place in Myanmar. And so you, uh, this was a, a big, important hearing where Aung San Suu Kyi represented Myanmar before the, before the court. Um, but then the coup happened and Aung San Suu Kyi was deposed and put in prison. And the Tatmadar, um, uh, the military government in Myanmar, put forward their own a replacement agent um, before the ICJ using diplomatic channels um, in in Belgium, which represents uh, Myanmar before the ICJ. Um, While at the same time, the Credentials Committee deferred its decision on whether to accept the Tatmadaw or the NUG's credentials at the General Assembly, which meant that the the, um, representative that was loyal to the NUG stayed in place at the General Assembly. So, um, and this was, you know, th- this was something that um, got almost no mention in the preliminary objections judgment from the ICJ, um, but was an issue that Myanmar's ad hoc judge, who was appointed before the coup, raised in his separate opinion, 
um, saying that it was um, he was lamenting the cursory way in which the court dealt with this um, uh, representation, essentially a representation dispute before before the ICJ. Um, because the NUG had uh, sent a letter to the to the ICJ, um, uh, imploring them to seat their own agent and, and not take the agent that the Tavadah had appointed. Um, but the the ICJ basically didn't um, didn't take that up and and just stuck to their regular diplomatic channels. Okay, yeah, I was going to say so. The critique by the ad hoc um, was that the the decision of the ICJ to just merely rely on the deferral equals incumbent rules proposition was a bit too, as you say, cursory, that they should have maybe delved a bit deeper based on the evidence provided. Yeah, no, exactly. So what, what, what he said in his separate opinion was that the uh, quick uh, mention that the court gave in its judgment um, gave uh, could could give the um, the false impression that this replacement of agent was just a matter of course. Um, and but in in his view, in his separate opinion, he said um, that this replacement was quote not self explanatory from a legal perspective. Yeah. Um, and he called the um, the ICJ's the, the majority opinion's um, statement uh, a laconic formulation. Uh, and he <laughs> he 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 writes uh, he goes on to say. That he wonders um, whether it might be for, appropriate for the court to reflect on how it deals with difficult, um, uh, excuse me, how it deals with factual and legal difficulties and identifying the government of a given state for purposes of representation and proceedings before the court. Because clearly, there's an interest of the court to maintain some unity element on how who they're allowing to represent before the court, and if they're just taking this laconic formulation, um, as they say, then it does become ripe for. I wouldn't say abusive process, but it would be a, just dis, a disconnect of who's representing who and which judgments are coming down against against them. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, also, I think in fairness to the court, it's a very difficult situation um, for the court to be in, um, where they have to come in, where in a in a place where they're really. I mean, it was the first time that there was a, such a representation dispute before the ICJ. Um, and this is so there, there's really not a lot of practice on this. It's not clear what the governing uh, law would say about this. Uh, I think also in part because there I think this in part goes back to what we were talking about with regard to the credentials committee, that their decisions are not public mm. um, because that that means that without any kind of public discourse around this, there's not the opportunity for state practice or pineo juris to come up with a, a, a rule of customary international law um, uh, in, in this in this situation um, and I think I think it would be difficult for the for the court to come up with criteria to make this assessment yeah, um, so when you they know rejected I, it in the first place <laughs> exactly exactly so you know I think judge ad hoc Cress's um, opinion was right to raise the question uh, but also I think right to not necessarily propose a solution at, at this moment um, <laughs> but I but I think this, you know, this also is a, a nice tie-in for arbitration um, yeah. because there are um, this this issue of competing government representation um, disputes has arisen before um, international arbitral tribunals as well, um, and so it's interesting to see what what they have done by comparison. And um, the the main case in which this has come up is um, ConocoPhillips versus Venezuela. 
Um, um, a couple years after the arbitral award was rendered, uh, Juan Guaido um, um, tried to um, take over the office of presidency in of uh, the presidency in, in Venezuela, um, and then subsequently there were the, there was a, an effort to um, annul the arbitral award uh, uh, through the exit convention, and so then the question arose whether the Maduro government or the Guaido government was the appropriate representative mm -hmm. of Venezuela in the annulment proceedings. Um, and what the annulment committee decided was actually to let both of them argue, uh, let both, both, uh, both sides argue the case, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is, which is of course a really, you know, really fascinating issue. Um, you know, I, th there's not much explanation in the annulment committee's decision or in the subsequent procedure, I think it raises a whole host of issues of, uh, you know, how you are, are, are sure that, uh, that, that council, you know, is acting on behalf of the right organ of the state. It could even raise some equality of arms issue issues from the investor's perspective, if they have to address, um, you know, two, two, two competing. Yeah. Who am I defending this award against? Yeah, exactly. 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 So that, that's a, that's a pretty fascinating situation too. And, and I think, um, also just to, to draw a, a, a compare, go back to something we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, which is, um, you know, why, this is such a difficult issue in the international plane compared to uh, at a national level. And because, you know, there, there have been these similar questions of representation in national courts, including in the United States in also involving um, the enforcement of arbitral awards in the United States um, and access to Venezuela's um, assets uh, for purposes of enforcement proceedings mm -hmm. um, in the UK. Um, but in national courts, it's actually very simple for, for a court because at least in the US and the UK, they, those courts have, um, explicit policies of just following whatever the executive has decided. Um, but at the international plane, there isn't, you know, there isn't a similar executive who can, who can make this, make this easy. But I think, you know, by, by analogy to, to US courts, uh, as well, it, it raises an issue that we haven't actually seen in international arbitration, but we very well could, which is, um, if you're challenging a measure in investment in investment arbitration, um, and the measure is taken by a government that uh, has a disputed title to mm -hmm. be the government, uh, does you know does that actually uh, constitute a, a, a breach of the underlying obligation um, uh, for yeah. you know for purposes of international arbitration? But we haven't seen that yet, but it's come that's come up in a couple national court cases, so it could be something that that comes on the horizon. Yeah, two weeks ago, or I don't know when, the, whenever this is published, two episodes before that, we actually talked to two barristers at 20 Essex Street about the UK court case that's happened, the Court of Appeal judgment that came down about the Maduro-Guaido uh, dispute, and that's exactly what you're talking about. But and and that unfortunate, unfortunately, for international arbitration practitioners, is through the lens of, as you say, what the executive who who they have recognized as as the um. I, the conduct of the state, whether that can be attributed to which government. Um, so we we see that already, but I and I, I see it's it's a missed opportunity. And although I, I wondering query whether an ad hoc committee can kind of make any inquiries into what the General Assembly or the Credentials Committee has decided regarding the recognition or accreditation of a certain state um, in 
in their judgment and reasoning as far as who can be represented in the ad hoc proceedings. I think that would, in the annulment proceedings, I think that's really interesting. And I don't know, yet. as I said, I don't know if it's a missed opportunity or whether it's even possible. Um, so it'd be, it'd be interesting. But I think it's something that people should have in mind considering what's happening now um, and and what could happen even in the US considering we have <laughs> debates on who could be president. Um, oh, don't let's let's not go there. No, we're um, not. but no, you 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 do you do raise a, a really a really really interesting uh, point, an important one about the um, sort of decentralized nature of international law in mm-hmm. this regard, um, and that specifically meaning that just because you know the the generalist the the, um, the credentials committee and the general assembly are the preeminent. Um, bodies when it comes to representation disputes, as we see through the way that other international organizations defer to their decisions. Um, and also in the resolution, in a, in a 1950 General Assembly resolution setting out some of the credentials committee's process of work, they say that there is an, an interest in consistency of government representation across international organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that other international organizations um, in inside, I think they mean primarily within the UN system, but I, I arguably outside as well should take into account. Um, and so the, the annulment committee in ConocoPhillips um, d- didn't uh, consider what, mm-hmm the credentials committee was, had, had decided in the case of Venezuela, didn't take that into account. Um, didn't mention it in, in their, in their decision. Um, and, and actually they, they explicitly make a distinction between their exercise as empowered under the exit convention and an international organization where they say that the parties do not dispute that the ad hoc committee, which is neither a political body nor the deliberative body, a deliberative organ of an international organization cannot hear and decide a political question such as the legitimate government of Venezuela. So they're explicitly saying that this issue of government representation as a kind of international policy matter is not within their jurisdiction. Um, and they, and they don't kind of refer to what other organs, are, what other, uh, what, what other UN organs are doing. Obviously, um, you know, uh, th- that's that's kind of a, a major policy question that mm-hmm. that surrounds these government representation disputes. Is it right that we have different um, answers to the government representation question for different contexts? Right. Maybe maybe it makes sense for ic- for an exit ad hoc committee um, if we can get over some of the equality of arms issues that both sides do represent the uh, do can present counsel in in that in that context maybe maybe that makes sense mm. um different question of you know you know maybe maybe that's a different question of whether that's the approach that would make sense before the ICJ or it it obviously can't make sense before um the the general assembly where every state has only one vote right. um um but you know, so or you know, or is that a, is that a problem that there's inconsistency? Should we be working toward a system where we have uh, government representation disputes se- settled in a centralized way um, that that uh, offers a consistent approach across um, across all international organizations that are that are yeah. involved? 
Yeah, it's almost analogous to referring a question of European law to the to the European courts instead of uh, the domestic courts. Intra- well, as, as we like to do on this podcast, at the end of every episode is to leave it with a question um, to allow our listeners to continue debating the topic. So I'd like to leave it there. And I'd like to thank you for joining us. Uh, it was a very interesting topic. Th- thank you so much, Brian. It was great talking to you. Jan, we have the pleasure of bringing it back to old school happy fun time where we really don't talk about anything serious and we start having some fun and poking fun at our industry. Um, As you know, because you've been with us since the beginning, Joel and I started this podcast as a way of highlighting the best parts of conversations between arbitration practitioners, which is the drinks after a conference Mm. and that's when you really get to the meat of the issues and people speak freely um so in that vein i asked the question you know you work in arbitration when dot 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 and i want you to give the final one after i give you some of these oh great um, but we'll go through them one by one and then let's have some reactions let's do that brian i i really like these kind of happy fun time segments because they are very the airport one i think i remember you yes, had the airport yes. one it's very very like uh, informal um <laughs> exactly it's this uh unsaid bond we have with with each other um and we're not trying to make arbitration sexy it's mm-hmm. just the, the matter of uh of what we work with um and the first one that i want to say is uh it's really funny because i just used it um you know your work in arbitration when you call yourself a practitioner <laughs> which is so true. And we talked about this. We said, because um, we're not arbitrators, right? That's a different word. And everyone who is outside of arbitration calls us arbitrators. So we have to say arbitration practitioners. Right. So uh, is is arbitration practitioner... So is arbitrator not an arbitration practitioner? No. Right. And what about... So I thought... So, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. So I thought it's either <laughs> that or as... Uh, academic and practitioner the the right. dichotomy right but it is also the adjudicative versus counsel yes yeah I, I, we just use it because we're trying to avoid the word arbitrator <laughs> and we don't know the right oh, word right. so, right. so okay. everyone yeah, yeah. no no, no it's pr- there's really because practitioner is basically anyone who's licensed to practice right, right? that's right. at least in the u.s that's what we would say um, but in order to dis- in order mm-hmm. to get around the fact that we say arbitrator and that's incorrect, we say uh, arbitration practitioner. I thought that was funny. Okay. <clears throat> uh, so is it academic or academician? Academic. Yeah, I, I hear people saying I'm an academician. What? <laughs> I don't know. That <laughs> must be some. Uh, is it yeah. Swedish? No. It's like uh, no. Okay. Okay. Well. Yeah. Nay, no, uh, you wouldn't thanks say Thanks for confirming. <laughs> okay. Um, I like this one. You know you work in arbitration when you know all the books and journals and websites even the, by name, even though they're basically called the same thing with variations of the same word. Nice. Which nice. is true. It's true. It's, it's true. Yeah. It's yeah. like international arbitration, arbitration internationally. In, in every jurisdiction there are. In every jurisdiction. Several, yeah. 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 Nice. Um, you know your work in arbitration when 
you're in Hong Kong this week, you're in Dubai next week, and you say to someone at a conference, I'll see you in Paris next week. <laughs> well, okay, okay. Well, that's making it, that's making it too sexy. <laughs> too sexy. I know, I know. But I think that's, that's pretty yeah. funny. And you just have no qualms in saying it. It's just completely natural. Um, okay, this one's pretty funny because it's practical. You know you work in arbitration when you keep buying new suits because by the time your hearing day ends, the dry cleaners have closed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've, I've bought many, many a new suit before a hearing because I didn't have time to go to the dry cleaners. <laughs> and they're all horrible suits, so I need to throw them. <laughs> Are they, so I have one that's like from the 80s, like Michael Douglas. Yeah. Um, 80s, I, I need to... <laughs> that's not, not, not for, for the hearings. Um, you know you work in arbitration when you know time zones of all major time zones commonly used in the seats yeah. of arbitration. Yeah. That's true. That's true, although I don't know um, summer saving times. Uh, um, daylight saving day, time. Daylight saving, yeah, daylight saving Oh, time. it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> we should get rid of that, I think. I think, I, we should I think so too. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should Okay, you know you're an arbitra- You know you work in arbitration when you go to tons of conferences to talk to other arbitration lawyers who will never refer you a case and call it business development. Yeah, that's pretty cynical. <laughs> that's pretty cynical. So we have a partner who always says when we ask if we can do some um, business development, but that's not business development. You're going to a conference, that's, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we all think it is, but it's definitely not. Yeah. Uh, you know you work in arbitration when you consider national holidays as the perfect time to file applications because they'll get the tribunal's attention. Yeah. Isn't that bad? That's, uh, that's really Have bad. you ever filed a Christmas application? Or a- yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it's, it's worse when it's served on you, when it you know, catches you by surprise. Yes, that's the worst. You're like, well, there goes my holiday. Um, you work in, you know, you work in arbitration when your inbox is annually deluged by colleagues asking you to vote for them in public rankings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you do you vote or? I I give referrals when they're yeah. when they're warranted. Well, that's that's very good. I I yeah. me me too. But I'm not getting. I know I know people just uh, have a spam filter because there are so many of these uh, awards. <laughs> that, there's your tech side coming up. And you, I don't even know how to make a slam filter. Um, okay. You know you work in arbitration when someone asks about the venue of the event and someone pipes up, but what about the seat? <laughs> <laughs> ha, 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 ha. Um, got a few seat jokes in my I, inbox. I love dad jokes. Um, <laughs> okay, here's another one for you. This is my other dad joke. You know you work in arbitration when the only party you get started is party autonomy. Okay. Okay. (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. A few more. Um, You know you work in arbitration when... Oh, here's another dad joke, actually. You resolve a dispute between two colleagues who can't agree on the office thermostat and declare it the hottest case you've ever seen. (laughs) Okay. That's a dad joke. Okay. That's a dad joke. Okay. Um... Here's another hearing one. You know you work in arbitration when your associate asks you how they should prepare for an upcoming hearing and you reply, buy some dry shampoo and a good concealer. <laughs> Do you know about dry shampoo, Jan? No, no. Oh. I've never used it. What's, uh... <laughs> it's mainly used, women typically use it. Right. Uh, it's basically so you don't have time to shower and your hair gets greasy, so you 
just spray dry shampoo and it like dries out your greasy hair. Okay, I, I've taken some notes. You should also invest in concealer, men and women. It uh, hides the bags under your eyes. <laughs> Before hearings. Before hearings, yeah. during hearings, yeah. every week. Um, you, okay, this one's pretty cynical, but it's quite true. Uh, you know you work in arbitration when you think it is the best way to solve international conflicts, even those that are in, in retractable, intractable, and the best political and diplomatic minds have failed to solve it. Yeah, I, I do, think... We do have a God complex on solving disputes, don't we? We, we do, and uh, that's what keeps me... It's part of it that keeps me motivating. I'm telling myself... If this just goes to arbitration, we can figure it all out. Confidentially. Um, okay, one more. This one's just a lighthearted one. You know you work in arbitration when someone sends you a marriage invitation and you say, even though the agreement gets invalidated, the part where we get invited to dinner is severable and has a standalone validity. <laughs> okay, I, that, that's, that's, uh, I like that n- n- nerdy, nerdy contribution. Yes, exactly. Okay, those are, those are the ones we got. Thank you for everyone to contributing. Jan, you said you had something from Michael Douglas? Oh, no. So I, so that was just a comment. Like you, oh. you said you bought, uh, you buying new suits for, for here. Ah, uh, I, still, uh, I still have an old one that, that's from, oh, it looks like suit. Michael Douglas in. <laughs> oh, because it's like 80s. oversized? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The big ones. <laughs> the nice American ones. Well, you have to shop at the big and tall stores, Young, because you're so tall. Do you have tailor-made suits or do you... I've, I got a few when I came to London because these traveling tailors, they, traveling tailors are a thing in London and that's not right. a thing in, in Sweden. And also suits in Sweden are cut perfectly because they have good fashion. Um, but <laughs> no, I, I got a few and it seems uneconomical, but... Um, right. But it is, I mean, it's obviously great to get your own suit. But if you go to Hong Kong or some of these places, you can get a pretty affordable tailor-made suit. That, that's brilliant. We should do the fashion week, arbitra- arbitration fashion. <laughs> or you, can, you can have a segment about fashion. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think we've had that. Give people tips. We have not, but we should. <laughs> that, that's a good one. Um, any more? Any more contributions to you know you work in arbitration when? I, th- I, I have one. It's you know when you work in arbitration when you get a message from your banking friends that finish at five thirty um, that your drink <laughs> is on the table and you have a submission to make uh, the next morning. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's like uh, you know you work in arbitration when a weekend is not a real yeah. thing. Yeah, there's there's loads of those, loads of those. <laughs> uh, okay, great. That's a, that was a fun little happy fun time. Yeah. Relaxing. I, uh, yeah, back to the roots. I like Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Email us if you have any other ones at thearbitrationstation at gmail.com or just send me a message on LinkedIn. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jan. Good to see you again. Good to see you, Brian. Big shout out to our co-host, Sadia and Joel. We miss you. Yeah, we miss you both. <laughs>